You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. We are four weeks into a series on our church called Belonging. There's two things that mark that series for us. The first is a member renewal, inviting all of our members to renew their membership. Um, We are asking all of our members to have that done by October 17th. So next week, next Sunday, will be the last Sunday of this series. And then uh, a week after that, we'd love for all of our members who, who plan to renew to have renewed by that time. We've been, we've been emailing. Uh, there's information uh, around on how to do that. If you need help, please come by Connections. Uh, but that's the deadline for that, October 17th. The other thing that marks this series is we've been walking through our church's values. These are the things that we love as a church, the things that shape us as a church. And so uh, they're everywhere around here and will remain everywhere around here. We want all of us to know kind of collectively what uh, truths and what loves unite us together. Life in Christ, Word of God, people of presence. And then uh, this morning, whole person discipleship, all of life fully formed by love for Jesus. We'll be in several passages this morning. We'll be in the ones that Rachel just read for us. If you want to, you can turn to Mark 10. That'll be kind of the first place that we land in a little bit uh, as we talk about whole person discipleship. Um, at the Roller House, we have people over often. Uh, there are people coming over to our house all the time, whether that's friends or family or church members or babysitters. In fact, Sometimes my kids will wake up and the first question they'll ask is, who's coming over today? Not because we have plans or not because we've said someone's coming over. They just expect that, that somebody's probably going to walk through our front door. And our home, you know this about your home, you know, home is very personal, right? When, when someone's in your home, you just, uh, it, it changes things, right? Uh, there, it feels uncomfortable if a complete stranger's in your home. It feels a little bit awkward. Uh, it's violating if somebody's in your home unwanted, right? It feels comforting when, when someone that you love and do life with is in your home and, and they operate in your home like they make themselves at home and they know their way around. It kind of reveals the strength of the relationship, how comfortable they feel in your home, right? And when people come over, this is probably true about your house and, and our house or your apartment or wherever you live, people have access to different parts of your home depending on who they are to you, right? They operate in your home differently depending on how close, you know, you are together. So the other day, there was a knock at the door, and it was a salesman. Now, usually, uh, Carrie answers those because I am an easy sell. Uh, I'm, I have a hard time saying no. Carrie is the negotiator. She can be strong when she needs to. She can say no, and, and I have a hard time saying no. Part of that is because uh, I know how hard that job is, the door-to-door job. In the summer of 2006, I sold security systems door-to-door in Salt Lake City, Utah. This goes without saying, it's the worst job I ever had in my life. It was terrible. It's hard. But because of that, I feel for people who are in that kind of sales, which makes me an easy sell, right? So, but this time I answered, and the guy told me what he was doing and kind of gave me his pitch. And at the end of his pitch, he said, can I come in the home and, and tell you more? And I said, I said, no. Uh, I stood my ground. We're not interested. Actually, what I told him was, I would, but my wife's not interested. So I... I <laughs> I just kind of gently threw her under the bus. But um, anyway, we told him bye. So this guy was uh, welcome on the porch, not welcome in our home, uh, because the relationship was salesperson to homeowner, and the conversation on the porch was as far as we wanted that relationship to go, right? 
A few weeks ago, a friend came over, knocked on the door. The kids opened. They were coming over for dinner, and they came in, and we had a meal in the kitchen. And then these friends, they hung out kind of in our living room and in our kitchen in, in maybe our, our common spaces. They hadn't been over to our house often, and so they, they moved around our home in a way that reflected the relationship, right? There were rooms that we didn't want them to go in. There were messes in those rooms that we didn't want them to see, right? So they stayed where they stayed. Two Saturdays ago, my sister came over with her four kids, and they just burst through the door without knocking, and they run into every area of our house, and they operate in our home like they're family, because they are family. They've been there. They know their way around. We don't want them in every room. There's definitely places we don't want them going and, and messes we don't want them either seeing or making, but they operate in our home at, at a deeper level because the relationship's deeper. And then there are people who live in our home, us. Uh, we exist in every space in our home. We have access to every part of our home. Carrie and I own the home with the bank, mostly the bank, but we own the home. And so Carrie and me and our three kids, we live in the home like it's ours because it is have access to every part. The problems of the home are our problems, right? If something goes wrong, it's our responsibility. The messes in the home are our messes. We know where they are, and we live in it like we, like, we, like we live there because we do, right? So some people stay on the porch. Some people are welcome into the common spaces. Some people burst through the door and fill almost every room. And then a few people live in our home like it's ours, access to every part, see everything behind every door, okay? If you'll follow the metaphor, if your life is like a home, Different rooms, different spaces, different level of access, different messes, different problems. Who is Jesus in your home? Who is Jesus in your life? Like what, what kind of access does Jesus have in the rooms of your life, in, this, in the spaces of your heart? At Citizens Church, we value whole person discipleship. What that means is Jesus is not a guest Jesus is not even a friend in that sense. Jesus is not even close family. Jesus owns the home. Jesus resides in and brings his healing, freeing, changing presence into every part of our lives, every part of our lives, all of life fully formed by love for Jesus. There's nothing about our life that is off limits to him. I don't know of a more important conversation to have or a more important question to ask in our part of the world. I don't know of an area where Christianity is as misunderstood as this often is, where at least in our part of the world, for some people, Jesus is relegated to the porch, right? And I am a Christian uh, in word only, but everything about the way I live says that I'm actually not interested in the conversation going any further, right? For some, he's welcome in, but he's expected to stay kind of in the common spaces, in the, in the personal spaces or off limits to him. Maybe they're closed off. And so that comes out in a way that I compartmentalize my life or I have these divided parts of my life between what I believe is religious and then what I believe is kind of secular, what I believe is sacred. And, and so what that means is maybe that, that means Jesus has something to say about sin or something to say about things like heaven, but he has nothing to say about the way that I disagree with people or about the way I interact online or the way I spend my money or the conflict in my marriage. That's not religious stuff. That's just my life, right? And then for some, and this is, this is where I want to lean in this morning. For some, and maybe most in the room, there's a lot of access, a lot of love for Jesus. Um, there's sacrifice in my life of my resources. I have an active faith. I confess sin. But I also have like this really broken relationship with my dad or with my in-laws or with a coworker, and there's healing needed there. There's discipleship that's needed there. 
but I'd rather keep that part closed, either because I don't want to deal with it, or maybe I don't even know that Jesus cares about it. Or there is this pattern in my life of trying to please people in my life, and it creates all of this insecurity in me, and, and, and I care more about what others think than about what God thinks, and I know that there's work to do there, and I've known that for a really long time, but I've been avoiding it because I know it's going to be uncomfortable. Or maybe I love Jesus, but what I've noticed about me is that I'm really easily offendable. I get upset all the time. People fail to meet my expectations all the time. I am uncharitable in my assumptions of others. Criticism flows from me a lot easier than encouragement does. But none of that's a problem. That's just who I am. Like that's, that, I put that in a drawer in the home labeled personality and believe that there's nothing to deal with in that, right? And what all of that leads to, like the, the subtle theology under that is that there are parts of my life that Jesus wants to change, and then there are other parts of my life that, that are just none of his business. And what that leads to is a kind of divided, divided discipleship. That's a, that's a compartmentalized Christianity, and it misses the freedom that comes from Jesus being Lord over and present in all of our life. At Citizens Church, we, we do not want to be divided disciples. We don't want to be compartmentalized Christians. We want to be whole people. We want to be be whole disciples. We want all of our life under the rule of Jesus. And again and again, what I I want us to always remember and have at the forefront of not just our relationship with Jesus, but, but the forefront of all of our life is that this is the point of Christianity. Like, what Jesus is after is this kind of change. So Rachel read Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, not converted in Christ, not feeling happy thoughts about Christ, mature in Christ. That word mature comes from the Greek word teleos. It means complete. It means perfected. It means to present everyone who they were always meant to be that had no shot of becoming on our own, but we can become in Jesus. Romans 8, he says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Your salvation, your Christianity, my Christianity is about us becoming like our brother Jesus, conforming into the image of God's Son. In Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The, The context is marriage, very famous passage about marriage, but Paul can't help even in talking about marriage. Paul can't help but marvel at what Jesus is doing in the life of his people. Marvel at what he's doing in his church. He gave his life, he says, to sanctify us, to cleanse us, that he might one day present us holy and spotless and beautiful. This is the work that God is after in our life. He saved us to shape us, to to make us whole. It's the ice sculptor illustration that I've used a couple times now. If you missed it, here it is. There's this famous artist, this famous creative years ago, uh, who was paid to, to sculpt this massive ice sculpture of a horse for this fancy gala in Europe or something like that. And so he spent all this time doing it, and it was unveiled at the gala, and everyone marveled, and it stole the show, and it was massive, and it was beautiful. And so this reporter interviewed him after the, after the event and asked him, how do you do it? Like, what's your process? What's your secret? And he said this, I start with a block of ice, I get my tools, and I chip away at everything that doesn't look like a horse. God saved you to shape you, to make you whole, and what that means is he loves you right where you are, and then he invites you in this process of him chipping away at everything in your life that doesn't look like Jesus. You, you are the block. 
that sounded way more aggressive than what I meant. You, you are, as you are, loved by God, but he doesn't leave you where you are, but slowly chips away at what doesn't look like Jesus. And so that chipping includes uh, cultivating the things in you that are not bad, that just need to be redeemed, right? I think in our circles, the truth that we miss often is not everything in us needs to be crushed. Some things about us just need to be cultivated. God has given us gifts. He's made you uniquely who you are, given you your personality and your story and your gifts. And much of following Jesus are, are those things being redeemed and drawn out. But here's the point. Brothers and sisters, the great aim of life, the great aim of life is becoming like Jesus, uh, our life conforming into his image. And that happens only as we surrender and open every part of our life to his rule and his word and his presence. And one of the things that I, I think we need to be mindful of living where we live is there is a real danger to compartmentalize a lot of that. There's a real danger to ignore a lot of that. So here's what I want to do. I want to consider three areas of life that are easy to leave undiscipled, at least in, 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 at least in our part of the world. Uh, three rooms of life, if you will, that we leave undiscipled. I want to look at a few scenes in Jesus' life where what you see him do is you see him go after closed doors in people's lives and try to open those doors to bring change in, in places that people maybe even didn't know that he wants to bring change. So here's the three. Disordered loves, emotions, and our past. Three areas of life, three rooms of life that at least in our part of the world are really easy to leave undiscipled. Disordered loves, our emotions, and our past. I could spend a sermon on each of them. We probably should at some point. But really all I want to do is start the conversation in each room. Mark chapter 10, Jesus goes after a man's disordered loves. As he was sitting out on his journey, verse 17, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Would you remember that? Looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Augustine talked about discipleship, um, about, he talked about following Jesus as this process of reordering our loves around Jesus. Uh, and that idea actually influenced the way that we define whole person discipleship here, all of life fully formed by love for Jesus, we become like Jesus as our loves are formed around him, namely as Jesus becomes the greatest love in our life. So many of us only think about following Jesus in categories of right and wrong, or we'll evaluate how we're doing in categories of, of sin and obedience or good and bad, and that's fair. That's all fair. But, but that's not all there is to pay attention to. What can happen in our lives is we can have good things in our lives, that because they're good, we can subtly start to treat them as God, and they can become God things. Or, or there are things that are okay to love, that are actually good to love, but they become dangerous when we love them out of order, right? My eight-year-old, she'll ask me often, Dad, do you love me more than? And then she'll fill in the blank. Dad, do you love me more than the dog? Yes. Dad, do you love me more than the church? Yes. Dad, do you love me more than your coffee? Yes. Yes. Do you love me more than Asher? That's her brother. I'm like, no, I love you the same. Sometimes 
she's so funny. Sometimes she waits until Asher gets in trouble <laughs> and I'll get on to him. He'll like be in timeout in his room and then she'll just appear. <laughs> Dad, do you love me more than Asher? Like now's the time. She'll also say, Dad, do you love me more than Jesus? And the answer is always no. I love you with my whole heart, but I love Jesus most, right? Um, if I love her most, it's not good for her. If I love her most, it's not good for me, right? I love her. I love my family. I love this church. I love all those things best when I love Jesus most. That's true for you. Of all the things that you love in your life, you love the things that you love best when you love Jesus more than those things, when you love Jesus most. That's what rightly ordered loves are. And it's easy for love to get disordered because there are so many good things in our life to love. There's so many things in our life that we're commanded to love, and it's just so subtle that things can start to get oriented around things as if they're God that are not God, right? And Jesus wants to have that conversation with you and with me. He wants to knock on that door and say, are, are, is part of following him a mindfulness of a thoughtfulness towards in working on ways that those loves can get disordered. A man comes up to Jesus who loves God. There's, there's no other way to interpret the details of the passage. He loves God. He, he, he may even have some sort of love for Jesus, even though Jesus is probably unfamiliar to him. He calls Jesus good teacher. He wants eternal life. It means he wants to be with God forever. He keeps God's commands. And on the surface, everything is right about this guy. He runs up to Jesus. He kneels before him. He's excited to be in Jesus' presence. He's eager to hear from him. Everything looks great and seems great. And then the conversation turns when Jesus goes after his disordered loves. It says he looked at him and loved him and said, sell all you have and give to the poor and follow me. Sell all you have and follow me. Now, Jesus has lots of conversations with rich people where he doesn't tell them to sell all they have. He's not against wealth in itself. Wealth in and of itself is not evil. But at the same time, what he asks of this rich man is the same thing he asked of all his other disciples. Leave behind what you have to leave behind and follow me. And because this man had more, he had more to lose than the ones who said yes there was some level of love for Jesus, but when Jesus draws the line and says, follow me, his disordered loves are exposed. The thing that he loved more than he loved Jesus was exposed. And here's how we know. Your greatest love is the love that you refuse to lose. Your greatest, you will not turn your back on what you love most. You won't. The story starts with him running to Jesus and bowing his knees. It ends with him walking away from Jesus, hanging his head, because while he bowed to Jesus in his actions, he had actually bowed to his money in his heart. That's a divided person. That's not a whole person. That's a compartmentalized person. So see something about Jesus in the conversation. What motivated him to go after that in the man's life? It says looking at him, he loved him. He loved him. That's what motivates all of this for Jesus, his love for us. Jesus wanted good things for him. Jesus knows what money can and can't do for that man's soul. He knows that. So out of love, he invited him to love something that wouldn't fail him. He invited him to love most in his life something that wouldn't rust, something that wouldn't rot, right? What we want, <laughs> I think what we expect, especially here, what we expect of Jesus is just to leave it alone. Like, He's doing great. Jesus, he's obeying commands. He ran to talk to you. He knelt in front of you. In fact, Jesus, you're poor, and he's rich. And there's a way to have this conversation where this rich man makes a, a great contribution to your ministry, and then everyone's happy at the end of the day. And that's not who Jesus is. 
That's not what he came to do. Jesus refuses to be a guest in this man's life. He refuses to be a guest in your life. He did not come to coddle us in our idolatry. He came to call us to complete surrender to him. All of life surrendered to him. And so he will go after. Part of following him is over and again, he'll look at you, he'll love you, he'll look at me, he'll love me, and he will go after the gap between our religious kneeling before him in our action and the things that we've actually knelt before in our heart. Look, if you want to be whole, if you want to become like Jesus, this work of paying attention to disordered loves will be a regular, ongoing part of your life. So here's a good question to be asking right now. <laughs> the, the line between loving good things and loving those things in a disordered way is really thin. It's really hard to spot. So a good question to start having the conversation, which again, all I'm after, all I'm after is that we consider these spaces as part of our discipleship. A good question to ask would be this one. Is there anything in my life that Jesus could ask me to leave behind that would make me want to leave him? Is there anything in my life? If you put yourself in the story, if you put yourself on the ground, knelt before him, what could he ask for that would make you want to get up and walk away? A lot of things come to mind for me. Gosh, most of them are the things that I tend to find my value in, that I don't really think I find my value in until I consider not having them. Ministry, job, even just a quality of life, a certain level of health, relationships. What about you? I'm not asking if you've solved this. I think this is a fight. I think this is the fight of Christian formation of following Jesus. Is this part of your life that's being discipled, right? Is this part of your life that's being changed? Do you, friend, have categories that aren't simply what in my life is good and what in my life is bad, but do you have the deeper category of do I love good things in a way that's not good? Can I be honest about that? Two, our emotions. Another area, another room that's easy to ignore is our emotional life. Uh, to be spiritually mature is to be emotionally healthy. You can't have the, the former without the latter. You can't be the former without the latter. In Matthew 8, Jesus is uh, with his disciples in verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. In Matthew 5, we did this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus uh, says, You've heard that it was said, don't, don't murder. But I say, Whoever's angry in their heart has committed murder in their heart. To be clear, the point of these passages is not the emotional health of the disciples. It's not the point. But what you do learn is you see how Jesus interacts with the emotion that comes out of the heart of his disciples to help them, to disciple them, to shape them, right? It, it, what happens is, is he interacts with the emotions in a meaningful way and interacts with them believing that the emotions coming out of us say something about us. Say something about what we believe, right? So fear and anger in both. Jesus follows those emotions to some theology or some sin or some belief, right? Why are you afraid, he asks. Well, because there's a storm and you're sleeping, right? But sure, you've seen what I can do, though, and, and, and yet the fear that you have, 
what you're feeling reveals, it's a window into what you believe. And in that sense, it was the size of their faith. There's a book written by an Old Testament scholar who wrote a book with a, with a biblical counselor called The Cry of the Soul. It's about the book of Psalms. It's wonderful. And they say this in the book, every emotion is a theological statement. Every emotion is a theological statement. And then they describe it this way. Um, if following Jesus in this complicated life, if it's like a battle, our emotions are messengers in that battle. They are messengers from the front line of the battle that tell us how it's going. They tell us who's winning. And we see Jesus treat emotions like that. They are messengers sent from the front line of the battle of the heart, for the, the battle for faith and the battle for love and the battle for hope. And, and, and these messengers, whether it's fear or anger or worry or joy or stress or a sense of peace or a sense of trust, all of those things are saying something. They're sending a message. They're saying something about what we believe in any given moment, right? They are giving us a live feed into what's going on in our heart. And I just wonder how many of us pay attention to our emotions like that. What's natural, if we could kind of think of the spectrum, what's natural is on one side to just ignore emotions, uh, think they mean nothing, or, or maybe just avoid dealing with what they mean. On the other side is maybe to elevate emotions. Hannah Anderson, uh, she's an author, speaker. In her book, Humble Roots, she talks about the common thought around emotion is that uh, we need to be authentic about our emotion. That's kind of the popular conversation about it. And so authenticity with our emotions is the goal. But by that, we only mean, by authenticity, we only mean being honest about how we're feeling, right? So being someone who I, I tell it like it is, I tell people how I really feel, right? And, and so whatever that might be, as long as I'm honest, that's all the work that's needed. And what she says is, she says, being honest about how you're feeling without being able to be challenged about what those feelings reveal is honesty without accountability, which isn't authenticity, it's just another way of being fake. Or I judge my emotions. Like I, I feel this way and then immediately I make a judgment about it. I shouldn't feel this way. I think for Christians what that means is we assume that all difficult emotions are to be avoided. So joy is godly, anger is wicked. That's not true. You can feel joy over wicked things, and you can feel anger in a righteous way. Jesus has a very robust, a very thoughtful teaching and interaction with emotional health. Emotional health is not about feeling one way or the other. It's not even about making judgments about a feeling being good or bad necessarily. It's deeper than that. It's about seeing our emotions as part of our discipleship, as part of our formation, seeing them as messengers, and then asking of those messengers what it reveals. What does it mean, right? How, how do I see my life with Jesus? That's why in Matthew 5, he goes beneath the act of murder to the anger because the anger says something. Anger makes a theological statement, right? Before he quiets the storm, he speaks to his disciples, fear, and he follows their fear to a belief that they have so that he invites them into greater, more robust faith and belief, right? Do you pay attention to that room in your life in that kind of way? Like, I don't mean, do you take a constant audit? No one needs to emotionally navel gaze in their life, right? But like, okay, um, you probably emoted a lot the last 18 months, you know, you probably had a lot of feelings about a lot of things, uh, maybe surprised by some of those, maybe overwhelmed by a lot of those. H have you thought, and, and that's still happening because things are still crazy, have you thought about what your emotional response to any one thing 
Have you thought about what it says about your relationship with Jesus? Is that a, is that a connection that you're trying to make? When I think about me, if I just think about the last 18 months and I do the work of asking questions about the things I've felt or the things that I kind of feel most often, uh, some of it's been encouraging. Like I've felt deep gratitude for things. Um, uh, some of it is, is encouraging in that I've felt deep empathy for people who are hurting and those things are signs of health. I think those are good theological statements underneath those emotions. Um, but most of it's not been good. <laughs> it's like the, the last year I've felt so much frustration and so much discouragement and so much anger and if I do the honest work, much of it adds up to wanting to be in control of my life in a way that God has not entrusted to me and in a way that is not good for me or anyone else in my life. Like, what the messenger said over and again is Jamin thinks he could do a good job doing God's job. He wants more control. He thinks he has solutions for problems that God hasn't asked him to solve. Jamin thinks he has sermons to preach to people who God hasn't asked him to pastor. And the emotion tied to all of that is wanting more control underneath frustration, underneath anger, underneath discouragement. It's a theological statement. It's, there's idolatry tied up there. There's an area of my discipleship where I need more grace and I need confrontation and I need more healing. Look, there's a way to look around at all the problems that are going on right now to get angry, to grow bitter, to feel superior and think, look what's wrong with everyone else. And then there's a way to pay attention to all those emotions related to all those problems and conclude, my biggest problem is me. I need Jesus. These, these, there are these signals coming up from my soul by way of emotion that are trying to get me to pay attention to things in my life that are undiscipled, things in my life that I need to bring out into the light. Is that kind of work part of your discipleship? Is that room open to Jesus where you're saying, Jesus, I want to be honest about what my fear means and what my cynicism means, what my insecurity is telling me, what my apathy, maybe even apathy in this moment is trying to tell me about my relationship with you. Last one. Jesus wants to disciple, access, minister to our past. In John 4, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman at a well in the afternoon, and they're talking theology, and then they start talking about her. And here's where the conversation goes in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. In this conversation, where does Jesus go? He brings up her past. We don't know all the details of what happened in those five marriages. I'm sure it's a mix of a lot of things. It's pain and loss and maybe being taken advantage of and sin and wrong. We don't know all that there is to know, but here's what we know. Jesus goes there. She likely is getting water at the well at that time of day because of her reputation, because of her past. She's trying to avoid it, and Jesus brings it up. In John 21, it's my favorite passage of Scripture, we see the same thing again. Peter had denied Jesus three times very publicly. A few weeks later, Jesus, uh, a few weeks after Jesus resurrects, he invites Peter to breakfast on a beach. And he initiates a conversation with Peter about those denials, but he does so in a way that holds Peter's entire ministry life in front of him. We don't have time to unpack all the details of it, but in verse 15 of 21, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He asks him that question three times, and he uses that name every time, Simon, son of John. He has not called him by that name in the book of John since he met him. What he's doing in calling him Simon, son of John, is he's taking him back to life before Peter was Peter before Peter had had any ministry, before he had a ministry name. 
And he asks him this question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He asks him that question three times. Why? Because Peter denies him three times. So Jesus constructs this conversation in a way that ties this past moment of faith and this past moment of failure together so that they're not even just talking about Peter's sin anymore. They're talking about all of his life, all of his person, all of his purpose, right? So he brings up the five marriages with the woman at the well. He brings Peter back to this moment of denial and moment of conversion. Why? Because Jesus knows something. The past doesn't stay in the past, especially the the failures of the past, the sin of the past, the wounds of the past. It invades the present. The woman at the well has some sort of history of failed relationships. She comes to get water when no one else is there. Jesus asks her a question. She tries to dodge. I have no husband, which is true, but behind that answer is so much more. You can see the way that she's haunted by her past. It's very present in her present, right? With Peter, the kind of betrayal that he committed, public rejection of Jesus, hours after publicly saying, I will die for you, the shame of that, the guilt of that, the embarrassment of that, that doesn't take care of itself. That doesn't go away. It stays. It invades the present. And what many try to do or believe about our past is dismiss it or ignore it. And we don't work like that. We weren't made like that. That's like seeing a fire in a room of the house and believing as long as we keep the door closed, it won't spread. No. Guilt and shame over sin and failure and wrong, it moves through all of our life. It billows through every area of life, can't dismiss. And then what happens for others is we believe we're defined by our past. It's all we'll ever be. Like, uh, we, we believe that it's, it is who, it's most who I am. I will never be more than who I was at my worst. And so then life becomes about overcoming my past. And all of even our religious activity can become this sort of shame-motivated approach to change. Like, I will be better. And Jesus offers something so different than that. He offers something so much better than that. A woman talks to him. He knows there's a past that haunts her, so he goes there. His best friend betrayed him. Instead of just saying, it's okay, I came back to life, let's move on, right? He interrupts breakfast. He looks Peter in the eyes and says, we need to talk about what happened, Simon, son of John. Because Jesus doesn't dismiss. He doesn't believe you're defined by what Jesus and only Jesus can do and wants to do and has done is he reaches into their past to redeem their present and restore their future. He reaches into their past to redeem their present, no longer haunted by, no longer uh, invaded by, but to redeem their present and then restore their future. And it changes them, both of them. The woman at the well, he brings up her past. He doesn't say, depart from me, because I know all the wicked things you've done. He tells her about living water, tells her he's the Messiah that she's been waiting for. He offers truth and grace. And the impact that has on her life is she runs into town and says, I met a man who told me everything about me. Could he be the Christ? She doesn't run into town and say, I met a man who judged me. No, she runs into town and says, I met a man who knows me, knows me everything about me. Could he be the Christ? And something is different about her. The story starts with her getting water all alone. It ends with her standing in front of the people she tried to avoid, telling them about a man who knows her. And the difference in her life is Jesus with Peter. The conversation ends on the beach with Jesus calling Peter back into ministry and telling Peter denial won't mark his life. His past won't haunt him. His life will be marked by faithful ministry and a courageous death. That will be his present and his future. And he was right. Like, I don't want to speculate, but I wonder how different Peter's life is without this conversation. Like, does he write books of the Bible? Does he pastor the first church in Jerusalem? Does he give his life? Does he withstand persecution? Does he ultimately die a martyr's death? Or does he shrink back and fade away because of the corrosive guilt and shame of being the guy who denied Jesus when he said he wouldn't? And could it be 
that Jesus loves him so much, the one who denied him? Could it be Jesus loves him so much that he sees a future where Peter's past haunts his present, erodes his future, and so he looks in love at Simon, son of John. He reaches into his past to redeem his present and restore his future. And could it be that he loves you so much he wants to do the same? Could it be he loves you so much he wants to do that work in your life? I don't know your story, most of you. What I wonder is I wonder if there is something that Jesus has already called to mind from your past. Some sin, some addiction, some failure, some failed relationship. Maybe it's not even something you've done. Maybe it's something done to you. Maybe it's a childhood wound. And here's your plan. Your plan is to close it up and run from it because you don't know how to face it alone. What if you don't have to? What if the Savior of the world, the very one who defeated death, who forgives your sin, past, present, and future, what if he walks into the room with you with all of his grace, all of his love, all of his mercy, all of his tenderness? Is that open to him? Do you believe it matters to him? Is is that work of Jesus reaching into your past to redeem your present, to restore your future, is, is that part of all of this? For you. And by all of this, I mean your life, your Christianity, your belief. Is that part of your discipleship? Here's the prayer this morning, friends. Can we see how thorough Jesus' love wants to go in our lives? Do we see how holistic, how invasive, in the best kind of way that Jesus has changed in our lives? Every room, every corner, nothing that's not underneath his grace and lordship and mercy because he loves you. Just like the rich man, looking at him, he loved him. Looking at you, he loves you. And he wants wholeness for you. Wants to bring change into every part of your life, every space of your life. Let's do this. Let's end in prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes and pray with me? And I just want to give some space to consider. Much more that could have been said. But if you think about maybe even just those three spaces, areas where we're prone to love good things in a way that's not good, areas we're prone to love most what's not Jesus. If this morning Jesus had the conversation with you, is there something could ask you to leave behind that would make you want to leave him. And, and, and that's not for the purpose of guilting or scaring. It's for the purpose of inviting into greater freedom and love. If you think about the things that mark the emotional climate of your life, would you ask what those things reveal about what's going on in your heart? What are the messengers saying? about what you believe about Jesus and what you believe about you. Gosh, friends, is there a, just is there a room that holds something that happened, has happened, is happening? What would it look like to consider that as a place that Jesus wants to heal, bring freedom, 
disciple, make you whole. Lord, we love you. We need you. Feel in this moment woefully inadequate to know and to say all that needs to be said, God. But you know. Jesus, you're with us always, even to the end of the age, and so you look and love right now. You don't look and despise. You don't look and judge. You don't look and retreat. You look and love in all of our lives, over every area of our life, every room of our life. Make us whole. Make us whole. The freedom of the gospel is, is too rich to leave parts of our life untouched by it. So help us, reveal to us, form us and shape us. We love you. Amen.